Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 105. First 10 verses. You probably know me well enough to know I'd love to go read all 45 verses, but we're not going to do that. I'm just going to read the first 10 verses, and you can read the rest on your own. This is found on page 942 in your pew Bibles. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for all that you have given to us, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. God, you have revealed yourself in many ways. But Lord, one of the um, clearest ways that you have revealed yourself is through Scripture. So we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to understand who it is that you have revealed yourself to be as we read your word and hear it proclaimed today. God, that we would come to know you better, that we would come to love and trust you more as you continue to change us into the people that you created us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 105, verses 1 through 10. Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him. Tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord in his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Turning then to Luke 8, verses 40 through 56. Story we already referenced this morning. We found on page 1609 in your pew Bibles. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about twelve, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. 
But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning I'm pretty excited about where we are heading in, uh, in the book of Acts. And if you have been around for the previous, oh, six, seven weeks now, we have been out of Acts. We've been looking at passages in the Old Testament talking about David, and, uh, and now we're back. We're back to Acts, we're Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And what we are about to read is a particular story that happened at a particular time to a particular group of people, and yet what we learn through this story will have an impact on who you are and where you're living today. So let's begin. This is Acts chapter 8, and we're going to start kind of halfway through verse 1. It says, On that day... A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Okay, we're just going to stop right there. Because we've got to go backwards before we can go forwards. When it says, on that day, does anybody know what day it is it's talking about? Probably not. We just jumped into the middle of a story that's going on. So when it says, on that day, we've got to back up and say, well, which day is this? And it's the day when Stephen was killed. Stephen was uh, one of the people who had been chosen by the church to help in, uh, in the ministry of waiting on tables, helping people to get the food that had been uh, given and distributed properly. So he was one of the food distributors. He'd been set aside for that. And yet, just because of his association with this Christian movement, with this Jesus fellow, he was singled out and targeted for execution by the religious leaders. And that is exactly what had happened. And so now we go back to that first part of verse 1 where it said, And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. When we look at the very beginning of these eight verses, it looks pretty bad. It actually looks really bad. Because what we have seen is so far in the story, well, just take us back to Acts chapter 1. Acts, just reminding you where we are in the whole scheme of everything. We are shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are still in that early, early time frame of the church. And Luke, the author of Acts, begins his book by saying uh, that in his Gospel of Luke, he said, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So that if you read Luke, he's saying this is what Jesus began to do and to teach. If you read Acts, this is how Jesus is continuing to do things and to teach things, but now through his church, which are the people, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts. And then he says... Uh, just before he ascends to heaven, 
he gathers them together, and in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, uh, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see this as what Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be my witnesses in all these different places. And so far, we have read seven chapters in, and it hasn't happened. If you read Acts 1 through 7, everybody is still in Jerusalem, and we've seen some pretty amazing things happen there. But now it looks like, well, game over. They're not going to be going to the ends of the earth. They're not going to be spreading the news of Jesus everywhere because, well, for one thing, they are politically unpopular. (laughs) And there are people who are going around now trying to destroy the church. That happened with Stephen. We saw that in chapter 7. And if you think, we looked at David and Goliath a few weeks ago. Everybody knows the story. If you think that what that story means and its implications for everything, for every other story, is that David wins over Goliath because he is the righteous one who is on God's side. Therefore, God demonstrates that he is the, the true God by winning in battle. Therefore, what that means is any battle that we find ourselves in, whoever wins must be on the right side. You see how you might be able to make that leap? If that's the case, then what happens here is you look at Stephen being killed by the religious leaders, and you say, well, they are the religious leaders. They are clearly on God's side. And here's this guy who's doing something else, and he's getting killed. Surely, surely if God were on his side, he wouldn't have let him die. Therefore, these guys must be right in the right, and Stephen must be in the wrong. But if you read through the story, To this point, you see that's not at all what's happening. In fact, as you look at Stephen and how he dies, you see him uh, proclaiming who God really is in the face of people who are denying it. And you see Stephen actually looking like Jesus, more and more like Jesus, even as he dies. Saying things as he dies that Jesus said when he died. And so we know that that can't be the case. And yet, if you imagine yourself in this first century standing on the street corner in Jerusalem and watching this, here's what you're going to see. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. This is not good. This is getting really bad. And what we're seeing is that uh, this plan that Jesus had laid out in the beginning of this book seems to be coming to an end. That now we have people like Saul who are going around and seeking everybody they can to either kill them or drag them out of their homes and have them thrown in prison. So you're standing there, street corner, first century Jerusalem, and you see this happening. And you have to ask yourself, which of these people is on God's side? Who is it that God is favoring in this scenario? And it would be easy to think that it might be the 
Pharisees, that it might be the religious leaders, that it might be Saul. And in fact, that's exactly what Saul's perspective was. That he's doing this because he believes that these people are leading people away from God. And so he is going to be God's, I don't know, hitman, I guess. <laughs> and he's going to get all these people who are doing the wrong things and throw them in prison or have them killed. So it's looking bad. However, we're just going to skip down to verse 8 for a second. We'll talk about another place. And in verse 8, it says there was great joy in that city. There's great joy in that city. So we start, we look at the first three verses of this chapter, and it's looking bad, bad, bad. We skip just a few verses down, and suddenly there's great joy. Something has happened in between. Something has happened in between. And before we get there, I have to talk about something else. In Genesis chapter 1, there's this line that's repeated over and over again. And it is, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There's evening and there's morning the second day. There's evening and there's morning. And you constantly have this evening and morning. And even uh, Jewish people today, that's the day begins at sundown. And so, you know, Friday night, sundown, that's the beginning of the Sabbath day. And it doesn't end until sundown on Saturday. We, don't, we normally don't think of it that way. We normally go, you know, the day begins either at sunrise or maybe at midnight, whatever uh, we're following. But we normally don't say, you know, evening, you know, when evening sets, that's the beginning of the next day. Biblically, that is the way it goes. And I can't prove it. But I have a sneaking suspicion that the reason that it describes it this way is because that is the telling every day of the story we're all a part of in all of human history. Because what is evening but the setting of the sun and darkness overtaking the earth? And if you look at the very early chapters of Genesis, what do we have? People walking with God and relating to him in intimate community. And then when they turn away, it's like the sun is set. We have turned away from the light, and now we are in a period of darkness. And as you go through the whole rest of the Old Testament, what you see is generation after generation after generation spiraling away from God and into continued darkness. But, like stars in the sky, there are points of light along the way. <laughs> but it's not until we get to Jesus that things change. And this is where the prophets they prophesied about him. Matthew picks up on that. And it says that uh, Jesus went to, uh, this is Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Hang on, I'll get there. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the story we're in. That with the coming of Jesus, the light had begun to dawn. Morning is just around the corner. But we're still in that period of the light dawning. 
know, we know that daylight is just around the corner. Same way that every morning when you see that sun start peeking over, you don't think, yeah, but is it going to go back down? <laughs> it's just going to peek over the edge, and then it's just going to turn around and go the other way. No. So when you see it coming up, you know it's coming up. And this is what we have as those sure promises in the Bible. When we see Jesus coming, that light beginning to dawn, this is what we have to look forward to when the darkness goes away and when we have light. We actually see this at the end of Revelation. There's actually no sun anymore in the <laughs> new heavens and the new earth because the Lord himself is the light. Anyway, like I say, I can't, I can't prove that's the reason why in Genesis 1 it puts it that way, evening and morning, but I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, has to do with that being the story that we live. So, back to Acts. Back to Acts 8, when everything seems to be going wrong, and then later it ends up in joy, here's what happens in between. It says, verse 3, Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. There are a few things to sort of highlight from this particular section of what it was that happened. And um, first, it says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I don't know if you caught this in verse, was it, 1? When it says, on, the, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Did you hear that? All except the apostles. That means now as we're looking at these, uh, these next few verses, those who had been scattered, it wasn't the apostles. These weren't the apostles, and yet what are they doing? They're preaching. They're preaching the word wherever they went. They are spreading the good news about Jesus wherever it is that they're going. And, of course, uh, we see signs that accompany that. Every time the gospel breaks into a new area, we always see signs of confirmation that these people are actually speaking the good news of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Who is this Philip that's mentioned? Have we ever heard of him before? Take you back to chapter 6. Chapter 6, you remember I said that Stephen had been set aside as one of those to wait on tables. This is verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, and then a bunch of other names that I can't say. But Philip is one of these. And so it Right after it gives this list, these are the men who are chosen. Stephen, Philip, others. Then we get the story of Stephen. And how things go horribly bad um, as far as it looks from the outside. And then as soon as the story of, of Stephen is finished, then we get the story of Philip. Oh, great, here we go again. But with, Steve, or with Philip, we have a very different story. With Philip, 
We have Philip preaching, performing signs, miracles. And great joy is in the city. It's really understandable that in the situations we find ourselves in, we have to say, why, God, do you do the things that you do the way that you do them? Why is it that Philip gets to see this amazing ministry success and Stephen gets killed? How is that fair? How is that right? And, of course, anybody in uh, Stephen's friends and family would be like, you know, God, maybe you could have done it the other way. Maybe they need to die at all. Where were you? And that's always the question when bad things are happening is, where is he? And the answer that we get scripturally is he's always right in the middle of it. Not that he's causing it, but that he's there, he feels it too, and he would not allow it unless he could make it into something beautiful down the road. Now, before you even start, saying, well, what about this situation? What about this situation? What about this situation? How can you say that with something? I don't know. That's why I'm not God. But I think he's got a pretty good track record of taking horrible, horrible things and turning them into things better than we can even imagine. And that's what we see uh, in this situation here. It's what we see when you take a look back at uh, in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers sell him into slavery and say, you, you intended this for evil. This was a bad thing. And yet God has used that for the saving of many lives. And of course, we see that in the life of Jesus. He was betrayed by a close friend. Not a good thing. Who is uh, sent to the cross by a Roman official who just doesn't want to deal with it. Not a good thing. Who is... Uh, Got people turned against him because of an angry mob. Not a good thing. And who is killed for doing nothing wrong. Not a good thing. And yet, we look to the cross. We look to Jesus on the cross. And we say it is there that God takes all of our sin and the penalty of that on himself. He enters into our sin and our pain and our misery and our sorrow suffering and it's because he enters that and he takes it on himself and he dies and then he rises again we say this is the most beautiful thing the most beautiful thing so was it a bad thing that happened? absolutely God turned it into something beautiful something that turns into something good of course and this is what we see Again in Acts 1, or Acts 8, 1 through 8. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in this particular section, what we're seeing is that even though there's persecution against the church in Jerusalem, even though people are trying to systematically destroy those who are following Jesus, and we look at that and we say, this is bad, this is not be going on, 
that's true. But we also see over and over again, here and everywhere else, that the bad things in the world don't win. That is a huge part of our Christian faith and hope is that we serve a God and believe in a God who is bigger than all of that. And so when we see that people are going around systematically trying to destroy the church, what do we see next? Not that the church is destroyed, but it's been scattered, not like a retreating army, but scattered like seed getting ready to be planted in new places. And so we see the Holy Spirit moving even in the middle of all of uh, these terrible situations to spread the good news of a light that has now dawned and the sureness uh, of, the, of the coming daylight and the day when all the darkness will be wiped away and when all the, as Timothy Keller says, when all the bad things will come untrue. I mentioned earlier that this particular section here happened to a particular group of people a long time ago that has implications for all of us. Because everybody here, everybody, if you're alive, this is part of your story, we all experience pain and sorrow and suffering and tragedy and heartache. We all do. And a lot of people will walk away from the faith because when it happens to them, for one reason or another, they think to themselves, but I thought I was exempt. I understand why that would happen to other people, but why me? Steve Martin actually used to tell a joke uh, in stand-up days where he'd say, yeah, I'm just really bummed out. I just found out this death thing actually applies to me too. And it's funny because we know that on one level and yet we deal with it at different times in different ways at different ages. And the same thing is true for the suffering we experience. But we can say, of, of course, yeah, I wouldn't be exempt from that until it happens. And then we start giving all our reasons why it shouldn't have happened. Not to me, not now. Not like this. We all experience that none of us is exempt. And if we start thinking, but I thought the deal was if we followed all the rules, this wouldn't happen. And I've been trying my best to follow the rules. And you can look at Jesus. If anybody ever followed all the rules, it was him. And he still met suffering and pain and sorrow and tragedy. And you say, but I thought that God loved me, and if he loved me, this wouldn't happen. Well, because he wasn't going. I certainly love Jesus, and, this is, and that still part of his experience. None of us is exempt. And so if we are following Jesus, thinking that that is the way to avoid suffering and tragedy, it's not. Because we all face it. But here's where our hope is. Is that we follow Jesus knowing that whatever the suffering and tragedy is, he's entered into it, he's with us in the midst of it, and he has promised to bring something good out of it, whether in the near term or the long term, one day, all the bad things will be turned into something good and something beautiful. This is the message that these non-preachers were preaching in Samaria. And we'll head out from here. This is the, uh, the message 
that is causing great joy for all the people who are hearing it there. That in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins and hope for a life beyond the pain and the suffering and good things even coming from it. That is what brings them joy. I hope that this is what brings us joy as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.